There we go. Well, this morning I've entitled the message, Get Back Up. So this morning I want to talk to you about, you know, as we live our lives, there's going to be times that you're going to get knocked down, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, you're not going to, to live the life that you are hoping to be living. And the truth is that as a Christian, the Bible says that we're to get back up. And that's the only way that we can fail as Christians. The only way that we can fail is if we stumble and we don't get back up. You guys ever seen that, the old movie Robin with, with Kevin Costner? And he's got, uh, is it Morgan Freeman playing? Is it Morgan Freeman that plays the, the African guy? Remember he's getting his butt kicked by uh, little John on that river? And he looks to, to Morgan Freeman and he says, you got any ideas? And he says, get up, move faster. And that's kind of the way it is in the Christian life. When, when you get knocked down, it's time to get back up. You don't necessarily have to move faster. Just get back up. That's the important part. It's kind of like in boxing. You know, in boxing, when the guy gets knocked down, that's not the end of the fight, right? How does it become the end of the fight? It's only the end of the fight if the boxer doesn't get back up. Then it's a knockout. But if he gets back up, the fight keeps on going. The truth is, as a Christian, there's only one way to truly fail. There's only one way to fail, and that's to not get back up. That's to turn your back on God when you're down and just stay there. And the truth is, sometimes if you fall down, sometimes it just seems easier to stay down. Anybody ever felt like that? You, you fall, and it just, seems, it just seems easier to not have to keep pressing forward, to keep whatever's dealing with you, whatever you're struggling with, it just seems easier to give into it instead of keep pressing on and moving forward. The truth is, the reason why it feels e easier is that when you're down, when you're, when you're walking his direction, the devil doesn't have any reason to push against you. you know, the truth is, if, if you're walking and you don't feel any opposition in your life, you might want to look and make sure you're not walking the same way as the enemy. Because if you're walking against the enemy, how many knows you're going to bump shoulders with him every now and then? So the first verse I want to look at today is Proverbs 24, 16. It says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. This is a verse you should write down and memorize. It says the righteous man will fall seven times, but he rises again. So you ask yourself, well, this is talking about a righteous man. Am I a righteous man? Or woman, for that matter? Unfortunately, this, this was written at a time where man means man and woman. Don't be confused. We're talking about you two ladies. In 1 John 3, 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have your hope fixed on Jesus, if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior in your life, it says that you purify yourself just as he is pure. How many know Jesus is pure? He died. He, he had no sin. He was perfect. And if you have your hope fixed on him, you're in that exact same condition. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You have the righteousness of God if you believe on Jesus Christ. He's your, he's your Savior. And then finally in Romans three twenty eight, Paul continues, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What he's saying is, is, it's not about what you do. You can say, how can I be righteous? Do you know the stuff that I've done in my life? Have you, have you seen the stuff that I've done? And we can all say that. We can all, we can all look back at our lives and, and, and say, how can a God love me? How can God make me clean if, if he only knew what I did? I want you to know that God does know what you did. He's not confused. But he loves you in spite of what you did. And because of his son, he paid the penalty so that you could be righteous in spite of what you've done. 
The truth is, if you've been coming here for a while, I preach this a lot, and I'm never going to stop. I'm going to be preaching this till the day that I die, that you are pure in Him. Because if you've not heard it before, this is the kind of stuff that helps you build faith in your life. It helps you grow strong because the tendency for most of us is to look at our life and just we just want to feel guilty and ashamed. But this will help you build and grow if you begin to learn that in Christ you are brand new, that you are made pure, that you are made holy, that you are full of righteousness. And if you've, if you've heard this before, all it can do is encourage you and strengthen your heart, strengthen your resolve. It's something that you already know, but it, it strengthens you to hear it again. But the truth is that victory goes to those who persevere. It says the righteous man falls seven times and he rises again. You guys all know who Walter Payton is? Let me read you something about him. He was just five foot ten, only 202 pounds. And football, that's, that's not a big guy. Not at all. It says, Walter Payton was not a, a particularly big running back for the National Football League, but he set one of the sport's greatest records, the all-time rushing record of 16,726 yards. During his 12-year career, Payton carried the football over nine miles. What is truly impressive, though, is that he was knocked to the ground on average every 4.4 yards. Every 4.4 yards of those miles, he was knocked down. Not only that, he was knocked down by someone way bigger than himself. But it says he kept getting back up, and he kept getting back up to run the ball again. The truth is, great victories await those with great endurance. If you're willing to get back up and keep running, you'll make it to the end. See, the thing is, the difference between a righteous man, one that's been saved, that's the only way you can be righteous. He's not talking about someone who's living the perfect life. And a wicked man, what he's talking about here, is someone who is saved, is that the wicked man doesn't get back up. They've walked away. If they've been saved, they've walked away. They, they fell and they just stayed there. The only difference, the only thing that keeps you from being victorious is your willingness to get back up. And it's not your falling that makes you unrighteous. The truth is you can't do anything bad enough to make God not love you, to make God take back his promise that he has for you. There's nothing that you can do to lose your salvation if you'll keep getting back up and turn towards him. In Romans 8, 38-39 it says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, that's a pretty extensive list we have right there. The truth is, there is nothing that's going to make God stop loving you. You can't do something bad enough. And you can't do something good enough to make God love you even more. See, we live in a, in a society now where we have this idea that God is waiting up in heaven with a big stick, just waiting for you to mess up. He's, wait, he's just, come on, mess up so I can hit you with, with, right across the knees. And that's what we have. In our, that's this idea that we have. And it's, it's really a sad thing because God is not like that at all. God's not waiting for you to mess up. He knows that you've messed up. He knows that you're going to mess up. You know, when, when you mess up, God doesn't go, oh, I can't believe you just did that. He knows. God knows the future. He knows the past. And the truth is that Jesus died for every single one of those mess ups. And that the penalty has been paid. And he's not going to ask you to pay it again. And there is nothing that can separate you from that love unless you turn around and walk away. Unless you don't get back up. In Psalm 37, 23-26, it says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, 
and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. You know, I thank God that the steps, my steps are established by the Lord. That God has a plan and purpose for my life. You know, I'm not here preaching this morning by some random chance, but God had a purpose and a calling on my life to, to be where I am today. And the truth is, God has a purpose for each and every single one of you in this room. And your steps are, are ordered by Him. He will guide you. He'll keep your way straight if you'll only keep your eyes on Him. In Psalm 66, 9, it says, Who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. You see, the truth is that that I look at these, these verses sometimes and I go, wait a minute, I've slipped. I, I mean, it says right here that he, he guides my ways, that he, he established my steps, or he won't let my feet slip. Wait a minute, why, why have I slipped on occasion? And I look at it, and if I, if I take an honest look back at what was going on in my life at this point, is those were the times that my eyes were not fixed on him, that I, I looked away for a moment. I found in my life that when, when sin begins to try to creep up on me and begins to tempt me and entice me, that instantly I begin to hear the voice of God telling me that you, that you are clean, you're forgiven, this is not who you are. And the only way that I can get involved in that stuff is if I go, hey, I, I know God, but tell me in a few minutes, let me just do this thing. You know, we, we push God away. But if we'll keep our eyes fixed on Him, then it's impossible to sin when your eyes are focused on the One who loved you so much that He gave everything up for you. And then what I also find amazing is says that He delights in His way. That's not a capital H. He's talking about us. The God delights in our ways. When we're, when we're walking according to His purpose and His plan, He delights in what we're doing. He's much like a proud father. When you, when you have your kids, all of you that have kids, when, you're, when your kid does something awesome, when they're doing the right thing, they're, they're in a school play and they're doing amazing, or, or you're teaching them something and they're finally getting it. I mean, what kind of joy do you feel in your heart when they're finally getting it, when, when they do well, when they make you proud? You know, God's like that. He's, he's sitting up in heaven and he watches, lives our life, and he, he's a proud father. He's, he's delighted by what you do. And then it says that, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. You know, and the picture I get in my head is much like when you're teaching your child how to walk. And their legs are they're still wobbly. They don't quite got it figured out yet, but you want to help them. So you lift them up and maybe you hold one hand as they begin to walk and they're, they're kind of wobbling around and, and falling down and moving around. But you, you, you hold one hand and then you let go for a moment. And they do okay, right? They take one more step, and then they fall. But, but how many know when you let go, you don't just turn and walk away and go do your own thing? You stay right there with them because you're not going to let them fall that they permanently hurt themselves, right? You're not going to let them fall so that they'll never get back up again. You're, you're right there with them. And God, if we can be these kind of parents, how much more so will God be a parent to us who will be there with us holding our hands that when we fall, he'll be right there with us to pick us back up? Now, just like a real parent, that doesn't mean that he's always going to be there to, to not let you actually try to take a step on your own. He's going to let you try to walk, but if you fall, he'll always be there for you. Now, for some people, you may not have had a great dad in your life. Truthfully, I've had a lot of dads. If you guys know my story, my mom's been married 
quite a few times, and I've, I've been through life with, with many stepdads. And sometimes seeing what a real father is is difficult for me because my, my real dad, I, I loved my dad. He was a great dad, but because of situation, he, he wasn't there. He was states away. And he always wanted to be involved, but how many of you know that when you live across the country, I'm not going to get to see him every weekend. I'm not going to be able to have him be a part of my life. And as, as a result of that, I find it now in my own personal life difficult to know how to be a good dad. Because the truth is that I did have good dads at times, but they were always being changed out, or I got a different one, or some just weren't good at all. And, and I never really knew what a good dad was. And, and that can make it difficult to look at God, and, and you begin to see him as the dads that were in your life. But I want you to know that, that God is, is not like a bad dad. God is like an incredible father. And don't let your opinion of God be skewed by, by what's happened in your life if you didn't have a good dad. Because the truth is that he's an amazing father. He's always there for you. He is the only man in this world that will never let you down. Amen? Then David goes on. This is David that wrote this psalm. And he says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. David says that I've lived my entire life and I've not seen the righteous, those that have, that have made God the center of their life, those that have been saved by God, forsaken. Now the truth is, this doesn't mean that he's never see, seen people have struggles. He's never seen people have hard times. He's never seen people uh, fall down. But ultimately, they always get back up. They always make it through. They always persevere. God was always there to pick them up and brush them off. And what I love about this is we, we continue on. It says, all day long he is gracious and lends. His descendants are a blessing. He's talking about those that are blessed. That all day long that they are able to, to be, a, because they are blessed, they are able to be a blessing to other people. Because they are blessed, it says that they are gracious and they lend. And the best part is it says his descendants are a blessing. How many know this isn't just a, a, a one-off thing that, that if you're following God and you raise your children in the same way, this is a generational thing that the blessing in your life will be passed on to your children as they grow up and live godly lives because you are standing up and being the man of your family. You're standing up and being excellent parents and raising your kids in the way that they'll go. Amen? Hebrews 10, 23-26 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So what is the confession of our hope? What is he talking about? Let's hold fast to this confession of our hope. That confession is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he came and he died for the penalty of our sin. He rose again and in doing so gave us a brand new life. He's made us clean. He's made us pure. He's made us holy. And it says here that God is faithful and his promises are true. In 1 John 4.15 it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This kind of stuff right here is like the, the greatest... Um, indication to me that we are holy when we have Jesus in our life, when we've accepted God, because he lives inside of us. How many of you know that Jesus is pure, God is pure, God is light? If you read the book of John, he says that, that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. That means that, that God cannot coexist with darkness. 
If he lives inside of you, that proves that you're pure because he couldn't live inside of you if you were not. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. You know, he who promised is faithful. If we entrust him with our souls, with our, with our, with our, our spirit, then he is faithful to persevere to that day. He's not going to, to fail you at any time. And then it says that let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another for all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, the truth is that, that not only are we supposed to, to, to live right, to do good deeds, and this is, not, this is not to earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. But as a response to what God's done to us, we want to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to Him. Amen? But not only are we supposed to do this ourselves, we're supposed to, to live a life that, that stimulates and encourages one another to do the same. That means we need to be a blessing to other people. It's kind of the whole pay it forward thing. You ever notice that when you, you do something good for somebody, they have a tendency to do that in return? We, we stimulate and encourage each other to do good things. And then it says, but not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some. What Paul is dealing with here is that we need to, to stick together. We need to, to be together as Christians to help each other grow, to help each other stay strong. See, church is an important thing. To be together with like-minded individuals is very important for your growth. I was reading something about feral ch- children. It was on Wikipedia, so it must be true. It says that feral children lack the basic social skills that are normally learned in the process of, of enculturation. For example, they may be unable to learn to use a toilet, having trouble. They have trouble learning to walk upright after walking on fours all their life. They display a complete lack of interest in the human activity around them. They often seem mentally impaired and have almost insurmountable trouble learning a human language. The impaired ability to learn a formal language after being isolated for so many years is often attributed to the existence of a critical period of language learning and taken as evidence in favor of the critical period hypothesis. What it's getting at is that these kids, when they're found and they're brought back into society, they they can't integrate. They have a very difficult time integrating. And the truth is, this is the same thing that happens to Christians. If you get saved and then you want to go live in a bubble by yourself and you never surround yourself by other Christians, people that can teach you and help you grow, it'll stunt your growth. It'll make it difficult for you to integrate into the body of Christ later that if we don't spend time with people that are of, of like mind. And then finally, the last, the last verse that I want to deal with in this scripture here, verse 26, is it can be a scary verse. I mean, if you, if you look at this, if you just read this right now, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, basically if we go on sinning willfully after we've been saved, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. How many of you read that and it sounds like that if you go on sinning after you get saved, then you're kind of out of luck? I know the first time I read that, I was like, uh-oh. I've sinned since I've been saved. What am I, I mean, does that mean that I've, I've got nothing? Does that mean that, that I've nowhere to turn? But the problem is, is what Paul is dealing with here has nothing to do with, with sinning after you're saved. What he's dealing with here is, is the Jews at this time who were rejecting Jesus. They got saved, but they began to reject Jesus. And Paul's saying that Jesus is the answer. I said, if you receive knowledge of the truth, you find out that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that he makes you pure and he makes you holy and you reject that, but you go on sinning, there's nothing else for you. You can't continue sacrificing to bulls and goats. That's not going to take care of it. You can't go on 
if you reject Jesus, there's nothing else that's going to make you pure and holy. You can't live a good enough life. You can't do the right things. You're fundamentally, we're born broken with a, with a, a dead spirit inside of us. So we need that replaced. So what Paul's saying here is not that if you sin after you get saved that you're, you're going straight to hell. What he's saying is that if you reject Jesus, after you have the knowledge of Jesus, if you reject that, there's, there's nothing else for you. There's, there's no other way to be saved except through Him. There, there are no remaining sacrifices. There's nothing else, only Jesus. That's what this part is meaning here. We have to stick with Jesus. Amen? Hebrews 10.35-39 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of your God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. You know, we can have confidence when we come before God. It says, don't throw away your confidence because we know that we can go before Him. In 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6, it says, such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I thank God that it's Christ that makes me adequate. It's Christ that qualifies me to stand before God, and I can come with confidence because Jesus was enough. And then it says that, it's, that we have need of endurance because it's with endurance that we are able to receive the promise. If we ever give up, if we fall and stay down, it's the only way to lose that promise. How many know that not having faith is the only way to disappoint God? In Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's the only way you can disappoint God is to stop trusting Him. Did you know that, that if you make a mistake and you, you fail, you mess up, you do something you're not supposed to? That's, that's not disappointing God. You're, you're not making God just bang His head against the wall going, Why can't you just get it right? The only way to, to disappoint God is to not put your faith in Him. The only way to please God. How many know that you can't live your life right enough to make God happy? You can't walk enough old ladies across the street. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't give enough money to the poor. You can't do anything enough to make God love you without Jesus, to, to, to make God be pleased with you without Jesus. Because the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But if you'll just put your trust in Him, all he sees is his son. He sees you with love and that's it. Trusting him is what makes God happy with you. And then finally we see that, that we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. It is, it is with our faith, it's with our persevering, it's with our getting back up that leads to the, the, the preserving. It's two words almost identical persevering and preserving but it's our persevering that leads to preserving of our soul <laughs> amen acts 26 20 says but kept declaring both to those of damascus first and also at jerusalem and then throughout all the region of judea and even to the gentiles that they should repent and turn to god performing deeds appropriate to repentance 
Now we've just looked at the last, the last uh, five scriptures or so, four scriptures, that, that God loves us no matter what, that we are righteous, and that as long as we'll get back up, that he loves us and he's with us, and that leads to the preserving of our soul. Now here's the disclaimer. Freedom from sin, which is what you get in Jesus, freedom from sin, is not the same as freedom to sin. Just because God loves us, not for what we do, but he loves us in, actually in spite of what we do, God still loves us, does not mean that we have the right to act foolish. It doesn't mean that we have the right to do these things. Now, the truth is that, that, that we're going to fall at times. And, and this is where it's a beautiful thing that when we fall, God still loves us. He still cares for us. And it's not the end of our walk with God. He doesn't just write us off because we messed up. But at the same token, that doesn't give us a license to do whatever we want. You see, the problem is, is that the common view of repentance in this world is actually kind of wrong from a biblical standpoint. I was looking through a bunch of online dictionaries for, the, for the, the definition of repent. And all of them had this as the first definitions. It says to feel or show that you are sorry for something bad or wrong that you did and that you want to do what is right. The world considers repentance this idea of, of, of feel. You know, you, you really haven't repented if you just don't feel bad enough. I mean, you got, if you did something bad, you've got to feel really, really awful if you want God to forgive you. But that's wrong. That's not what repentance is about. I actually found one, one dictionary, only one dictionary online. And I, I, granted, I didn't look through all of them, but I looked through a few that had what I believe is the biblical definition of repentance. And, it's, and it says that... And did I not write it down? <laughs> there it is. <laughs> to turn from sin or to change one's mind. That's the biblical definition of repentance. What it is, is, is when you repent, it's not about feeling guilty or sorry or terrible for what you've done, but what it is, is at one point you're looking at sin, you've turned from God, and to repent is to do a 180 and look back at God, to turn from sin and turn back to God, to change your mind of what you're dealing with. That's all repentance is. And this is what we have here, is, we, is Paul is going out. And he's preaching to the Gentiles in the region of Judea and everywhere that they should repent and turn to God. They should repent from what they were doing and turn back towards God. And then what does it say? Perform deeds appropriate to repentance. See, the truth is that if you accept Jesus Christ into your life, that you are made a brand new person. A miracle actually happens inside of you. You're made brand new. The old person that you were is dead and gone. You have a new life inside of you. You are, you are new. And the truth is that we do what we are. When you're not saved, you do stuff that's, that's according to this world because you're not saved. But when you get saved, you have a new life inside of you. Those are the kind of things that you'll begin to do. And you'll begin to see a change. You'll begin to see deeds that are appropriate to repentance. A, a change of your mind focusing back on God. The truth, he's not saying that these, these deeds were what saved them, but these deeds were as, as a result of, of the, the realization of God's great love towards them and what he's done for them. See, this is where getting back up is so important. Because for some, I've read stories. I've never actually met anybody that's happened to you, but I've read stories about people that, that they accept Jesus Christ into their heart and their life radically changes from that day forward. I mean, everything that they were doing just completely flips on his head. 
They just, I mean, they were drinking, smoking, girling it up, doing all these things, and they just, they changed overnight. Everything just stopped. That wasn't me. I lived this quasi-Christian life for 20 years trying to change, trying to do the right things. And it wasn't until I finally decided, you know what, God, I'm giving my life to you. I've tried, I've tried to do this on my own for so long, but I'm going to give my life to you. And that's when, when things begin to change, not because I was changing myself, but because I realized that inside of me something had happened. There was a change, and I began to living out, live out who I was on the inside. And it didn't happen overnight. There were a lot of things that over time began to change in my life. And, and even to this day, every day, I still grow more and more. Amen? Just like anybody else, I have to get back up. Keep repenting. When I, when I, when I make the mistake and I, I, I do sin, and, and yes, pastor, you guys know pastor sin? It's true. You know, we get put on pedestals sometimes thinking that we're these super saints. But the truth is that, that just, like, just like you, we have struggles. And, and there's times that we have to repent and turn back towards God. So let's look at some examples in the Bible of people that, that repented and turned back towards God. And these, we look at these, these people. What I want to show is that these aren't the best people in the world. These people that we're going to deal with, these stories, you know, they, they weren't basically good people and then they turned to God and everything was okay. I mean, there was some rough stuff going on. The men of Nineveh, in Luke eleven thirty two, it says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You guys all know the, the story of Nineveh and Jonah and the whale? Nineveh is the city that Jonah was supposed to go preach to. Now, you guys may not know this, but Nineveh wasn't a Jewish town. They were, they were heathen. They were Gentiles. And the reason why Jonah took off and jumped and was trying to run away is he didn't want to preach. To, I mean, they weren't Jews. He didn't want to bring the word of God to people that weren't Jews. So he began to run. And he gets on a ship and the storm comes and they throw him overboard. The whale eats him and spits him out in front of Nineveh. So he goes back and he ends up preaching to this people, much, much to his chagrin. He's, he's against it. But the entire city repents and turns towards God. Matter of fact, he's the most successful prophet in the Old Testament and he didn't want to do it. But the entire city, an entire Gentile heathen city repented and turned towards God. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament or, or really just any history of, of people that they were living back then, they did some crazy stuff, some very ungodly stuff just as part of their everyday life. I mean, it was, it was their society and their culture. And from a godly standpoint, they weren't doing the right things, but they all repented and turned back towards God. And if they could get back up and follow him, the same is true for every single one of us. Judges 16, 28 through 30, we, we hear about Samson. And it says, And Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines from my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Everyone know the story of Samson? He was a, uh, uh, an, a Nazarene. He, he kept his hair growing out. So, and that was his deal, right? He was super strong as long as he let his hair grow out. So 
Samson, from birth, his, his mom prayed for him and offered him to God and said, God, he is your, made him a Nazarene. And, and uh, they have some rules as a, Naz, as a Nazarene. In Judges 13, 13 through 14, it says, So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat eat anything that comes from the vine or drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing let her observe all that i commanded these were also the same rules for for a, for a nazarene they they couldn't drink anything that came from the vine they had to stay away from everything dead to remain clean and and this was before jesus so the there was a lot of actions that you had to do to to remain clean before god and samson begins to turn his back on god first thing he starts chasing after for a non-Jewish woman. He's trying to find a, a, a woman from the Philistines, and he's trying to court this woman. And in the process of doing this, he starts trudging along through a, through a grape field. He's not supposed to be anything from the vine. He's supposed to not drink any of that stuff. So he begins to, to slowly turn his back towards God and begin to do the things that he wants to do. Then he comes upon a lion dead in the field with, with a honeycomb in its chest, and I have no idea how that happened. It seems very odd to me. But then Samson's like... Look, honey and, a, honey and a dead lion. I think I'll go eat some. I don't get that either. I don't think that's something that I, I would do. But nonetheless, <laughs> he goes and begins to touch a dead thing. And that's just the beginning of, of Samson kind of wanting to do things his own way. He's, he's falling, but he's not getting up. He just keeps doing his own thing. Then he gets involved with Delilah and... and, uh, and how can, <laughs> So... She's like, how do, I, how do I make you not strong? What's the secret of your strength? And he says, oh, you've got to tie me up with fresh leather cords. So he wakes up strapped in fresh leather cords, and he snaps him and kills a Philistine trying to kill him, and, and a light bulb doesn't go off and go, wait a minute, I just told her, and now I'm, hmm. So then she goes, oh, you lied to me. You said it was the cords. How is it really? He goes, well, if you, if you tie me up with brand new ropes, then I'll lose my strength. So he goes to sleep that night, wakes up, tied up in, in brand new ropes, and he snaps him, kills the people trying to kill him. And, and once again, the light bulb doesn't go off. <laughs> then maybe Delilah's not such a good girl. So then she gets mad at him. And this is this right. She gets mad at him. You lied to me. <laughs> he goes, oh, well, you have to, you have to weave my hair in, a, in, a, in a, one of the weaving wheels and, and, braid, and braid it together, and then I'll lose all my strength. So he goes to bed that night, and he wakes up again, pinned to the Degum weaving wheel, Snaps the pin, kills the guy trying to kill him again, and once again, the light bulb doesn't go off. That maybe, just maybe, this girl's not the girl for me. So <laughs> she gets mad again, right? She tried to have him killed three times, and she wants to get mad because he's lying to her. Yeah, well, that's one way to look at it. <laughs> so then he tells her, if you cut off my hair, so for this girl, he turns his back on God, has his hair cut off, and they capture him, gouge out his eyes. But finally, in the end, Samson turns back to God. He prays to God and says, Lord, let, let me be with me one last time. And he, he, he repents, he turns back to God. And God was right there. God never left him. He was just waiting for Samson to turn back to him, waiting for Samson to get back up. Amen? Philippians 3, 12 through 14, now we're going to talk about Paul. It says, not that I have already obtained it or I have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God 
in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Almost everything you read in the New Testament, he wrote. And from the outside looking in, I, th I think we, we would probably all like to say that he was probably the greatest of the apostles, at least for the impact that he has on our lives. He's the one that has the most impact on our lives. Yet, even Paul says, I have not already obtained it. I have, I have not already become perfect. And the truth is, I find great comfort in this, and, and I think you guys should too, is that, that he hadn't obtained it. And maybe that's a, a strange thing to find comfort in, because obviously I, I would like us all to attain it, Paul included, to, to be there, to finally reach the end. But it gives me comfort because I, I recognize that Paul, even with all his accolades for the, for the body of Christ, he wrote most of the, te the New Testament, he, he was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He was just like you and me. He wasn't any different. He wasn't some super saint. He, wasn't, he didn't have an inherent disposition to follow God built inside of him. But he had to press on just like you and me. And like I said earlier, sometimes we, we look at, at leaders and pastors and, and we see them as these super saints that they can do anything and they don't have any troubles in life because God is always just walking right beside them and, and everything just must be awesome for them. But the truth is that, that the leaders are just like you. That the people that I look up to, my leaders, are just like me. They're not any different. They have the, the same struggles. And they have to press on just like, just like I do. And when he's saying here that I've not become perfect, he's not talking about his spiritual standing with God. The truth is that when you're saved, you are made spiritually perfect with God because you're given the Spirit of Jesus. That is, that is perfect. But what he's talking about is, is basically, the way I like to look at it is, is when you're saved, you're made perfect on the inside. You're spiritually perfect and your, your body kind of has to catch up with that. And that's something that, that we work, we, we, we grow towards in our Christian walk as we, as we push forward to the measure and the stature that is Jesus Christ. But then he says, Paul says that, brethren, one thing I do is forget what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead. See, this is the stuff that, that I look at, and, I, and, I, and it makes an impact in my life, because it tells me two things. One, he's not just talking about sin. Thank God he is, because I stopped looking at my past failures, because if you, if you look at your past failures, all they'll do is hold you down. They'll pull you back, and that's what the enemy wants you to do. The enemy wants you to focus on your sin and your failures, because when you're looking at them, you're not looking at God. You're actually looking at yourself. You become selfish in those moments instead of looking at God and what he's done for you. And I thank God that, that uh, I, can, I can look forward and forget those things and just press on. But it also goes for those good things in your life too. You know, I never want to be, in 20 years, be the guy that hasn't done anything for 15 years because I'm, I'm fixated on what I accomplished 15 years ago. I planted a church that one time. I want to keep living for God. I want to keep forgetting what lies behind me, good or bad, and keep pressing on towards, towards the uh, calling of Christ. Amen? <clears throat> so how do, we, how do we press on then? How do we move forward in this way? How do we always get back up if we've been knocked down? 
Especially when it seems like the things that, that we may have done have so much ability to cause guilt and shame in our lives. How do we get back up from that? The first thing you have to realize is that you're forgiven. No matter what, you're forgiven. In 1 John 1.9 it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to clean us from all unrighteousness. This word here, if we confess our sins... It's not so much about laying a laundry list in front of God of all your sins. These are, these are, Lord, I did this, Lord, I did that. But the word confess actually means to say the same thing as. What we're to do is say the same thing as God about our sins. And what does God say about your sins? Is that you are perfect. You know, the truth is, if, if it was all about confessing your sins to God, only those of us with perfect memories would ever make it into heaven. Because if you forget one thing, you forget to tell God about this one sin, you're never going to make it. But the truth is, this confession is to say the same things that God says about your sin. And, you're, and God says that they are as far from you as the east is from the west. The truth is, when I sin in my life, when, when, I, when I make a mistake, I don't even ask God for forgiveness anymore. I thank Him that I am forgiven. And there's a subtle difference in that because the truth is I am forgiven. I already am forgiven. Before it happened, I was forgiven. And I just thank him for it. The reason I do this is there was a, 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 a pastor that was telling a story. He said, you know, I used to ask God to forgive me. Lord, forgive me for this. And he would say, I already have. And he said, well, Lord, please forgive me for this. And he would hear God back saying, I already have. And we have to remember that we've already been forgiven. I just thank God that when I've messed up, that I am forgiven. And when temptations come my way, I thank God that I'm not who I was, that I'm a brand new person, that I'm able, that I'm victorious in Him, and I'm an overcomer in Him. See, this is actually what James is talking about if we don't stumble in what we say. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. We need to be careful with what we say. We need to, to say out loud that sin doesn't have a control over me anymore, that I'm no longer in bondage to sin, that I am clean. Because the problem is if you, if you start saying the wrong things, if you start saying, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm, I'm such a failure, and I'll, I'll never be right in front of God, and I can never do anything right, as you begin to, to say these things, I'll never be good enough. That's the time when you haven't bridled your tongue. That's the time that, that the enemy begins, to have an, an enemy begins to have an impact in your life because you're beginning to let him. That's what he's talking about, not stumbling in what you say. Only say what God has to say about you. And God says he loves you and that you're good enough and that he values you. He valued you so much that he sent his son to die for you. In Hebrews 12, 1, 3, it says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which is so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, it says here that we need to lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Sin is an entanglement if you keep your eyes on it. If you keep focusing on that sin, it'll entangle you. But, but Paul says, set that stuff aside. You are free from that sin. Set it aside because it's, it's like putting on a weight vest. I mean, would any of us ever expect to go to the Olympics and the, the final 400 meter dash and expect the, the number one contender to walk on with a 30 pound weight vest on? I, I imagine some of the other contenders would be hoping for that. But the truth is that that would just be ridiculous in our eyes. Why would you go out there with, that, with, 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 with ankle weights on? That's just going to slow you down. And in the same way, sin does that with our, our race set before us with God. To, to run with endurance, we need to push that stuff away. Finally, running with endurance is to keep running even when, when everybody else has stopped to catch their breath. You just keep going, keep pressing forward. And the truth is, we can do this because of what He has done for us, what He has done inside of us. It says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We were that joy. The reason Jesus went to the cross is for us. He, he looked at us and considered us more valuable than the pain that He was about to go through. He says he despised the shame. He didn't like what he was going through, but he, he did it for us because he cared that much about us. And then it says that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know when you, when, when you sit down, at least when people had work ethic, when they would sit down? It's when they were finished. Nowadays, people just sit down whenever. They get lazy. And, but back when work ethic was important, you didn't sit down until the job was done. We can know that he's finished because Jesus sat down at the right hand of God and he said, it is finished. The last scripture that I want to look at today is Jude 1, 24 through 25. A lot of you guys have heard this from me before because this is probably my favorite scripture in the Bible. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. It says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Like I said earlier, if we just keep our eyes fixed on him, if we fall, if we stumble, if we repent, turn around, put our eyes back on him and get back up, we will finish this race. We're going to make it to the end. If we'll keep our eyes on Him, He'll help us to keep from stumbling. Like I said, if, if your eyes are fixed on Him, it's impossible to sin. Every time I've sinned in my life, even, even after I've been saved, it's because I, for a moment, took my eyes off Him. I've looked away and pushed Him away in what He's done for me so that I could engage in a short-term pleasure of some sort. But the truth is that if you'll keep your eye on Him, He'll keep you from stumbling. He'll allow you to live the life that He has called you to live. You'll be able to run the race that you were supposed to run. And even if we do fall, we know that we can get back up. Because the truth is that we know that one day that we'll be able to stand in His presence, the presence of our Savior, blameless with great joy. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads.